You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I just want to let you know again that we're hiring a design director here at Glitch. You know, we're growing every single day, and we're really looking for a design director to not only help build a team of talented designers here, but also to help deliver a unified experience to our audience of consumers, curators, and creatives. So if that sounds like something that's right up your alley, then check out the show notes for a link to the job listing. Now for this week's interview. We're talking to Samuel Green, a designer and artist in Atlanta, currently working as a product designer at Airbus Aerial. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Samuel Green, and I'm a product designer and artist. Now, you were referred by someone else whom we've had on the show, actually, uh, I don't know, maybe about 10 or so episodes ago, Dexter Ferguson, um, who is a designer at Airbus Aerial. Um, And you're at Airbus Aerial also, is that right? That's right. How long have you been there? Two years. What's it been like? <laughs> it's been it's been very challenging, but um, in a good way. It's yeah, it's been a lot of learning. What kind of uh, stuff do you work on? I work on uh, software that allows uh, companies to acquire imagery and analytics based off of that imagery, and then you know help that that information helps them down the line with making decisions. Can you elaborate on that, or is that like top secret? <laughs> <laughs> it's not a kind of top secret the way you mentioned like we do things that do this. <laughs> no, for sure. I can elaborate. Um, so basically what we do is we have a suite of two main products. And the first product essentially is like a data library, right? And the data that we house in that library predominantly deals with aerial imagery and geospatial data. So essentially taking photographs of the earth from high up and then making maps out of that imagery. What we then do is we take that imagery uh, and then we run it through a series of either machine learning algorithms or some kind of geospatial algorithm that basically pulls out various bits of information about the land and the features of that geographic area. So we can look at things like, for example, uh, using color infrared photography or RGB photography. We can look at the health of a forest. We can look at the extent of burn damage from a fire. You can look at flooding levels, the amount of sediment and water, the health of vegetation, agriculture and crops, uh, things like that. And we can basically like overlay that data on top of the photographic map in the portal and give our customers information about that particular geographic area of interest. Through that particular portal, they can also order that imagery as well. The second product is a piece of software that ties into the ordering, the ordering piece of the first product, right? So basically what this product does, it's all about managing and connecting our customers with people who can acquire the imagery data they seek. Essentially, the way we do that is um, we provide three levels of resolution, a drone, which is the highest resolution imagery data, um, manned aircraft, which is the second highest resolution, and then satellite, which is the lowest resolution, but the largest geographic spread. And so basically the second product in our suite essentially allows us to determine based on the information given to us by our customer, what kind of imagery we need to deliver and, and what the time frame is for that delivery. As you're mentioning that, what I'm thinking in my mind, of course, is just like 
GPS and maps. I was actually reading something today. It was a study that said that GPS outage would cost $1 billion a day. And when you think about so many things that use GPS, not just, you know, Lyft or Uber drivers, but Google Maps or, you know, other things that use satellite positioning, uh, that's that's amazing. Is that sort of data what you end up working with or, or you supply to, to companies? Yeah, that's pretty incredible. So not exactly, but we do use some GPS data when it comes to collecting imagery, like for uh, in a drone collection, right? Mm-hmm. Like basically in order for, it's kind of related, but basically like in order for the photographs that we take to match up with the actual position of that area in geographic space, we do use GPS and a few other techniques uh, in the process of what's called orthorectification. And all that is is really stitching together a bunch of photographs and then placing it on a 2D map. Mm-hmm. So G- GPS is involved to a certain to to actually a large degree. Yeah. So if, if GPS went out, we, we would have a hard time doing that. <laughs> It'd be very difficult. When I was, geez, this might have been at least 20 years ago or so. But I remember when I was interning for NASA, one of the things that we were working on uh, was putting together this cylindrical coordinate system for something called SOFIA, uh, S-O-F-I-A, which was this large, I want to say like a, a jumbo liner or something like a huge airplane that had a hole cut in it with a telescope. And so we were working on the cylindrical system for that telescope. The plane basically just flew the world like it i think it hovered in the troposphere or ionosphere whatever sphere one of the spheres i don't know but it it will hover up there and it would get great imagery that was sort of more precise in a way than satellite because satellites were of course outside of the earth you know in the earth's orbit but then it was i guess not as precise i think this was probably before drone footage uh may have existed i'm not sure this was in the like late 90s early 2000s or something that reminds me of that, as you were mentioning all of that, that initially came to mind. Yeah, yeah, that's the, some of the accuracy, like just thinking about taking satellite photos, you know, there's a lot of stuff that goes into that. And, you know, one of the things that I learned about was, you know, just like the fact that, you know, you have to photograph through the atmosphere and it's something you don't consider, right? Or like if you're taking a satellite photo, what's the angle of the satellite as compared to the surface of the Earth? Right. So like basically the more perpendicular the satellite camera lens is to the surface of the earth, the more accurate your photo is going to be when you stitch it together. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's like there's all kinds of weird stuff you got to think about, but it's it's pretty amazing technology. And um, I feel pretty privileged to be actually learning about this stuff. So what would you say is unique about working there? That's a good question. Probably the fact that we are dealing with extracting this kind of invisible data about the earth from photographs. There is an incredible amount of information already at our fingertips via mapping software like Google Earth and um, Google Maps and Waze and all this other stuff. But it's really interesting to see that taken to like, it's like most technical extreme Mm -hmm. where now not right. Like now we're like, we're extracting like, you know, what's the health of this forest based on the amount of green in the photograph. Mm. You know, what, you know, are these floodwaters we're looking at or is this just a regular, you know, river system um, based on the amount of sediment uh, present in the water? And and it's just like all this invisible data that lives around us that we don't, you know, all this invisible information that we don't really realize is there 
uh, I think it's pretty incredible um, and a pretty unique opportunity to get to see that on a daily basis. How did you find out about Airbus Aerial? So I was um, actually in between jobs and one of my friends who was also a designer that I had worked with um, had just accepted a job uh, at another company, but Airbus had hit him up and they were looking for a designer. He declined, but pointed them in my direction and um, interviewed with the chief software architect and eventually the president of the company. It was still a really small company at that point in time and met with the, the lead web developer and one of the UAS specialists and uh, interview went well. And from there, the rest is history. How do you end up like approaching new projects at work? I would imagine, like you say, you're extracting all this invisible data. You're probably looking at a lot of numbers and statistics every day, but when a new project comes up, how do you approach that? So we're, I mean, to be honest, we're still nailing down our process. Okay. Um, the the company itself has been around for two years. So we're, you know, we're, we're still in a lot of ways uh, trying to figure out how to approach each new project, honestly. But I think one of the things that has worked for us on a regular basis or that's worked for us on multiple occasions is just really trying to stop and, and understand like what the crux of the problem is, right? Like each, each, each project, uh, from my perspective, is a problem to be solved for a particular group of people. So we spend as much time as we can really just trying to dissect and, and kind of discern what is the actual, what's the crux of the problem here, right? I think that goes back to like the five whys, right? Just keep asking why. Why is this a problem? And for whom? You know, we start there and and um, we're still trying to figure out how design sprints fit into the organization. But um, we basically do like a, a bit of an abbreviated design sprint where after we kind of have an idea of what the actual brief is, we start trying to ideate around the solution. And that could basically be, you know, what's what we've been doing so far is... We have a small design. We have a small group that gets together. Um, once we've figured out the requirements for the project, the business requirements, then we start uh, coming together and, and trying to work through what's the workflow, what's the basic functional functional workflow to get this piece of functionality uh, off the ground. Uh, once we've determined what the functional workflow is, we then go into a deeper ideation phase where we start thinking about the form that it will take. Uh, and that basically is just a bunch of rough sketches and a few wireframe prototypes. And then from there, we just kind of take it into the kind of, I guess, more high fidelity design phase. Can you give me an example of a project? I'm, I'm trying to, I guess, see, given this data that you're pulling, I'm wondering, like, what is a type of project that you would, would be doing with Airbus? So we had this idea to, so we work with mostly other companies, right? Um, actually, that's all we work with is other companies. And, you know, we help, we, we have this data, we have this photography, and there's a lot of data in it. And some of the data that we're pulling out, for example, is just, you know, what is the vegetation health, right? And, you know, there have been a lot of wildfires lately. And so we've been trying to assist in the recovery effort for wildfire. So for us, like a, one of the things that we're doing is, you know, um, we had an idea for basically taking the locations of customers, like insurance policyholders, right? Taking taking their data, their locations, and then essentially fusing that data with an analytic we had created based off of a satellite photo. And this analytic was basically called a burn area analysis. Mm -hmm. And the burn the burn area analysis, all that does is it really just combines 
color infrared photos and RGB photos to give you a sense of what has been burnt and what has not. Hmm. We then take that information and we create a layer on the mat that acts as an overlay that our insurance customers can use to kind of get a sense as to visually what's been destroyed and what's not. Uh, so then what they do is they essentially take those two data layers, the customer policy locations and the burn area analysis. They take those two layers and they perform an operation in our system called a fusion analysis. And essentially, that's just a fancy word for saying that we take two database tables and we join them and we figure out where the overlap is. And the goal for that feature, the goal for that product is to basically allow the insurance company to prioritize where they send adjusters and which claims they get to first. Hmm. So it's used kind of in a way like for risk analysis, I would, I would imagine. It's almost like risk analysis, except that risk analysis, I think, connotes like um, some sort of preemptive nature to uh, that data, right? Where like you're collecting it for uh, information prior to an incident, right? Mm -hmm. And while we would certainly love to get there, and that's definitely something we're working on, this is more for, you know, after a catastrophic event, you know, how can we help provide situational awareness and coordination efforts to these companies that need to help these people get back on their feet? So that's kind of where this project came in, is we're looking to help these catastrophic team managers and claims adjusters be more effective at responding to a crisis uh, after it's happened or while it's happening. Okay. What's unique about working at Airbus based on other places that you've worked at? I would say probably being a designer and trying to build a design organization within a company that is very engineer driven. Mm. What challenges come with that? Really, I think it's like the most basic one of people not really understanding what design is or the place it has in an organization such as ours. Now, are you working on a team when you're doing this or is it just kind of like a solo effort? It's been a so about 50-50. It's been a solo effort for the first year. And then we brought on our second designer back in November of 2018. And so it's been a team effort since then. Okay. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, I think with software engineering companies, it can be very difficult when design is sort of brought in because... I mean, I can speak, you know, just from experience here at Glitch, um, you know, we have designers that are, we call them design engineers. So essentially they do design, they can do front end, they can do UX, but then they also know how to implement it. They can code it out, you know, they can do front end, back end. I don't know if that's like full stack. I mean, titles are weird anyway, but I don't know what like the way is to describe how it is they do what they do and what you would actually call that, I should say. But then we also have very discrete sort of visual design needs. Like we need someone that can design slide decks or that can design one pagers or, you know, we have sort of discrete graphic design needs that are just visual, not engineering related or focused at all. Right. And it can be difficult for the non-designers to understand that, to understand that difference. Like, Yes, we need designers that don't code. You don't have to have someone in here that has to know how to build out something. Um, <laughs> and even, you know, with Glitch, we have a media department. We also need designers that work with video. So we need motion graphics. So we might need someone that works with sound. We need a sound designer. Well, we don't need a sound designer, but you know what I mean? Like there are other design needs that are not something that has to discreetly be tied to an engineering task or focus. 
And I can see how that can be sort of difficult in a software engineering company when everything is about building software. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's kind of the mindset, right? It's like, you know, you want it to be functional, right? They're, they're, it's, it's, it's like a functional mindset versus another kind. And I think that's kind of the issue is that, you know, the fundamental misunderstanding about design is that it's not necessarily all about like aesthetics. It's about communication. Mm-hmm. So especially when you have, you know, a need for someone who's strictly doing the visual design, it can be hard to see the value in that if you're not coming at it from the perspective of, oh, okay, this helps us communicate more effectively about our product or our goal. That's a good way to look at it. <laughs> that is not about the aesthetic. It's about communication. I need to, I should employ that tactic. That's actually, that's actually really, that's actually really good. So you originally are from Cleveland, Ohio. I actually have a lot of family in Cleveland. Tell me what it was like growing up there. Was design like a big part of your childhood and everything? Yeah. You know, I honestly don't remember much. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> it was like the first <laughs> it was the first 10 years of my life, uh, maybe like nine. We moved to Milwaukee okay. uh, when I was a kid. But, you know, what I do remember is Cleveland was very snowy. Um, <laughs> it was very, very cold uh, a lot of the time. I don't know. Yeah. I, you know, design wasn't it wasn't really a huge part of my childhood, you know, um, at least not in the traditional sense. Like I remember reading stories about other designers and people who were like, oh, yeah, you know, I was drawing from the time I could hold a pencil and all this stuff. And I was like, yeah, I like to doodle a little bit, but I was never like that into drawing as a kid, you know? It's weird how I got into design, honestly, when I think about it, because my father was, isn't is a computer scientist. He he's a, works primarily on databases. So growing up, you know, my father, he worked at First Star Bank, IBM, DEC, doing database warehousing for all these companies. And so for me, like I always had computers in the house growing up. We had PCs before a lot of people had PCs before it was a really regular common occurrence. So I just remember like, I loved Legos. I loved taking apart and building computers. That's probably like the first and most formative experience I have as like a creator that I can think of. So when did you know that, I guess, design was the thing you want to do since you grew up in sort of what it sounds like is you grew up in this very tech positive environment? Yeah, yeah. I would say probably college. <laughs> Honestly. Okay. Like like my mother, she and, and what's interesting, my mother was really into art. You know, she she exposed me to a, a, an abundance of art styles and and film styles uh growing up and I really had no idea what I was being exposed to, but thinking back on my life, you know, as an adult, I can see very clearly where a lot of that influence came from. You know, she was my first link to a lot of like, oh, those old classic leading man movies like with Humphrey Bogart or Cary Grant, um, you know, Alfred Hitchcock movies, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. You know, H.G. Wells, Time Machine. She really mm-hmm. got me to that kind of stuff. So I think I think without knowing it, she kind of like was, you know, kind of like planting the seed for me in that regard. So I always had a little bit of an affinity for drawing um, but I never, you know, was someone who did it prolifically mm-hmm. uh, as a child. And that didn't really kind of take hold until middle school or high school. Okay. Yeah. I, I know that, you know, a lot of, I guess, education here in the States is like that, where as a kid, you're drawing, you're finger painting, you're doing all this stuff. And then as you get up there in education go to secondary or go to primary school, secondary school, et cetera, the art stuff kind of just weans off. And becomes more of like a hobby, I guess. I mean, if you went to a school that had an art program, that's one thing. But it seems to be less and less encouraged the older that you get. Yeah, yeah. I've, which is sad, right? Because none of my schools like were had like a 
really in-depth art program that I went to growing up. Um, and really, it really wasn't until high school, honestly, where I had an amazing art teacher where I kind of really saw like just how powerful of a tool drawing and painting could be. And then later on, graphic design. Okay. Well, let's get into that. Uh, so you went to Georgia State. When did you move to Atlanta? 96. Oh, Olympics. Okay. So you moved right around that time. And you went to Georgia State for design. What was your time like there? Because I know I'm I'm trying to remember around that time. I know we had Atlanta College of Arts. We had, I think we had the Art Institute of Atlanta. Yeah. Um, so you had these sort of discrete design schools where people could go to. And you had, I mean, Georgia Tech. I don't know how much of a design thing they had outside of perhaps architecture. But uh, what was it like there? What was your time like there at Georgia State? Yeah, you know, totally. We had yeah, all those schools, Atlanta College of Art, SCAD, all that, you know, I didn't really know what I wanted to do after high school. Okay. I took a gap year and worked at Publix for a year. Um, and that was great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it really, I made some really great friends there. learned a lot um, about just like, you know, how to live as an adult. Um, but it was a lot of like soul searching. You know, my first, my first few years there were spent just taking a bunch of different classes. You know, I, I, had a strong interest in anthropology and linguistics um, since middle school. You know, I thought I would study sociology, uh, just a number of different things. I was just, I was just like trying everything, right? Just trying mm-hmm. to like soak it all in because it's just, it was just so exciting to be, you know, first of all, like on my own, away from my parents because I was living uh, downtown off campus at the time. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. So I had like that that taste of freedom, right? So I was just like, oh, give me it all. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Give me everything. (laughs) So yeah, I just kind of went from thing to thing and kind of, you know, I've always been kind of curious about a a bunch of different topics. So I just kind of tried to satiate that curiosity uh, as much as possible my first few years. And then it wasn't really until I started getting into the drawing and painting classes, I was like, I really love this. Mm -hmm. I love, especially painting, like I love the act of laying down paint. Um, like the, the various textures between like oil paints and acrylic and the feeling of dabbing the paint with a brush and experimenting with different application techniques to get different effects of the paint or just like different surfaces and how you would treat the surface like wood versus canvas versus linen and non-gesso versus gesso like all this stuff I really I just fell in love immediately once I started taking those classes and so I really I really just thought I wanted to be a studio artist and go that route but it wasn't until I took my first like graphic design class where I was like oh this is cool mm. and this is cool <laughs> like and it was just that moment for me where like a light bulb went off where I was like okay so this combines two of the things that I really love the most like communication and language and visual creation right it's like being able to do like visual art and have it like serve a purpose of like communicating something uh was really appealing to me so once i had once i discovered my first graphic design class i kind of gravitated away from drawing and painting and more into um graphic design and learning how to use uh various tools such as photoshop and illustrator so even back then it sounds like georgia state had the um you had that opportunity to be able to break away from that and go into more kind of computer-aided design in a way. Oh yeah, absolutely. Georgia State has some really great professors, and um, I honestly would, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of folks don't really think of GSU. In a prior earlier note, like a lot of folks don't really think of GSU when they think of like art schools. Like the um, Ernest G. Welch School of Design, like, is not top of mind for a lot of folks when they're thinking about art or design degrees. But it's a really amazing 
school. It's got a lot of great professors and I and, and some amazing students. I don't know. I, I honestly would consider it one of the best places you could go. And and not not just because of like the art aspect of it, but also because one of the things I loved about being at GSU was I had like the freedom to explore a variety of other topics as well. And I think that really helped inform my growth as a designer and artist. So when did you uh, end up graduating from Georgia State? I did not graduate. Oh, okay. You want to talk about that? Or? <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. No, no problem. Um, yeah. So basically, like, I, I was there for a while. And um, unfortunately, I ended up, well, not, not unfortunately, I just I just kind of like, I, I, I was one of those people that was always a little bit too curious for my own good. So, okay. <laughs> so I was just, I, I honestly just found it like I, I wanted to get out and and. and do stuff. Like I, I was like, Oh, I love the, what I'm learning, but I really want to get out there and like apply it. And thankfully I had a friend who was working at the time in the uh, Robinson school of business on his economics degree. And he was like, Hey man, we need a webmaster. I know you have experience in building and maintaining websites. Are you interested in doing this? And I was like, yeah, sure. Why not? And so basically like I started doing that and really just kind of fell in love with that and um, met some really great people at that school who had a small business on the side that they were running. And they were, I guess, impressed enough by my work that they asked me to do some work for them on a freelance basis. Um, and so they were kind of like my first freelance clients and did that work. Uh, they really loved the work that I did. We had a great relationship that lasted for several years. I grew a lot as a designer, ended up taking on more projects. And eventually I was just like, you know, I kind of want to do this full time. So I took a big leap and decided to forego my formal education at a university and just started working as a freelance graphic designer and web designer. Uh, that's kind of how it all started. So how how was your early career then? I'm, I'm curious to know after you you left Georgia State and you wanted to apply it out in the real world, what was that like? It wasn't easy. Uh, <laughs> a lot of folks were like, so... When did you graduate? And I would have to say, oh, I didn't graduate. And here's why. Oh. <laughs> so, and, you know, I never, I, I always made it a point to like, I never was dishonest about that fact, right? Like I was very upfront about that fact to the point of being kind of proud of it to a certain degree. Okay. I was much younger at that point also. So, but <laughs> well, that was also, I think around the time when the whole, like, I don't know, I feel like the narrative in tech around being like a, uh, I don't want to say a dropout. That's kind of a, a crass way to put it, but not finishing college was a badge of honor that a lot of entrepreneurs back then wore. Exactly. Exactly. I think like um, there were a few Mark Zuckerberg or did he, did he graduate? I don't know. Did he? he probably didn't. <laughs> yeah. That's also Stanford, but anyway, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, it, it, that that is exactly right. Like it was about that time. It was like, oh seven or oh eight and so like a lot of the tech luminaries i guess we can call them were like still fairly young in college dropouts so like there definitely was that that played into it but it was difficult because there were people who did want that degree right they wanted to know that you had completed something and that you had started something and you saw it all the way through to the end so i'll say that for a college degree is that it definitely like shows that you stuck with this course mm -hmm. right you started through but I think a lot of folks that I gravitated towards and whom I ended up later working for or with also saw like the number of projects that I had done outside of my coursework. And they saw that I had the ability to deliver on my word and that I had the ability to communicate effectively and to collaborate. Right. And I think that was the most important piece is like knowing that I could work well with others and that I was, you know, a uh, able to listen and 
decode people's wants and needs and, you know, hopes and fears and, and distill that down into something that would take the form of what they desired. I think the biggest takeaway I have from that experience is just really like just going out there and just doing what you felt passionate about and, and you know, putting putting your best effort into everything. And um, I think that showed. Well, speaking of doing what you're passionate about, you have a side venture uh, called Studio Mobius. When did you get the idea to start that? Yeah, so Studio Mobius. Um, so I, I started that in 2014. And basically, I was, I was working full time at a company. And I decided I just kind of wanted to go back into freelance work. And I really just wanted to have like a company behind my name to help give my clients a bit more confidence um, as a solo and me as a solo designer. And really, it was, just, it was just a way for me to make my taxes easier on myself. So it was more of like a contracting entity. But eventually, that kind of morphed as I kind of went away from freelance design into an outlet for me to do my more creative, non-money-making work, right? Like the work I, that didn't really need to do to like put food on the table. Mm-hmm. So around 2017, I linked up with some friends who were creative in a number of different fields and, and decided to kind of transform Studio Mobius from a freelance contracting entity into one that was more geared towards creating audiovisual installations. How does Studio Mobius differ from your day-to-day work? Yeah, so this is more, Studio Mobius is more, um, it's what I don't get to do in my day-to-day work. Okay. <laughs> so. So it's, 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 you know, like I said, I, I formed it with a couple of friends and um, two of those friends are musicians. Um, one of them produces music, electronic music. And the other one's, uh, he, he's also a DJ and the other one's a DJ and producer as well. The other friend is a guy who does visual art and he is also a videographer and um, a photographer. So it's very different in that, you know, we produce kind of like these, I guess, audiovisual installations for music events. Um, and we do a little bit of stage design as well. So it's really like a lot more of like a, this, a lot of what we produce takes place in the physical realm. Although it may start in the digital realm, it eventually makes its way out into the real world or meat space, I guess. Whereas a lot of what I do for my day job, the end product is mostly purely digital. So we're we're looking to create experiences, you know, that are kind of that surround you, that are in in the space that you exist. Can you talk about what some of these experiences are? I mean, I took a look at the website and I did see a couple of sketches, and I saw that you also like did some event collaboration stuff. So what we end up creating is usually like a blend of um, projected visuals and like uh, lighting installation for like the stage and performance area. So for example, we'll have um, you know, we'll either bring in a DJ or there will be a DJ who's putting on a show at, at a venue in Atlanta and they'll reach out to us. And so essentially what we do is using a few pieces of software, we'll create visuals either prior to the show or we'll do basically live generated visuals during the show. Right. So uh, and those visuals will be, will be projected onto a surface. Uh, and then we'll also complement that with lighting as well. So some of our more simple lighting installations have been just like an LED panel that is reactive to the person in front of it. So to use like infrared sensors and photoelectric sensors to kind of detect when there's motion and it'll transfer that information to uh, lights and it'll light it up. Some of our more like the, the visuals aspect will be um, real time generated visuals based on parameters such as 
uh, the audio coming from the DJ mm-hmm. or uh, in some circumstances we'll actually use crowd feedback and generate visuals based off of, you know, the crowd's movement. What do you think helps like fuel these ambitions that you have? Cause it does sound like what you're doing in your day job and your night job, two totally different things. Uh, if I can call this a night job, I should say um, <laughs> what you're doing with Airbus is very technical with data. What you're doing with studio Mobius is very creative with visual and light. What, what do you think helps fuel these ambitions that you have? Yeah. Yeah. No, studio Mobius is definitely a night job um, <laughs> for sure. But you know, I, I think it's really just me and my desire to like express myself to my fullest degree, um, if I can say that without, without sounding too haughty or arrogant, but it's just really, that's who I am as an individual. I love, I love, you know, like I said, I grew up with computers, um, on the one hand, taking them apart, putting them back together again. And I grew up, you know, with the love of art nouveau and architecture on the other hand. Um, so I feel like, you know, these two outlets really allow me to express myself in totality. At the end of the day, though, I think that my my grand strategy, if I can call it that, is really to move more towards experience design and interior architecture. I've had a passion for architecture ever since I was a child, and it's something that I've been interested in exploring. And honestly, it's been one of my greatest regrets, if I could say that. Um, mm. It's just like not exploring that track further when I was an undergrad, right? Not really giving that a chance. So I kind of see Studio Mobius as a way for me to rectify that and kind of get into architecture, kind of like as a backdoor, mm. right? So, so starting small with interiors and, and, and kind of like, you know, real world experience design and then moving eventually into um, small scale architecture. Do you have a dream project or anything that you'd love to work on? I can't say that I do. I would really just love to... Honestly, no, I, I can't say I do, uh, which may sound strange, but... I just, I would just really love to create more immersive experiences hmm. uh, for people. Have you heard of Flux? Have you heard of that? Yes. Have you participated in that? I have not. For those that are listening, can you just kind of describe, I guess, what Flux is? I know I just kind of threw it out there, but can you talk about what Flux is? Yeah, yeah. Um, Flux is basically a series of kind of immersive and performative pieces. And they are they can range from being site-specific to not, but... Essentially, it's it's it uses a lot of uh, light and sound to create these kind of, I guess, otherworldly or immersive experiences for folks that are a bit out of the ordinary, a bit out of the everyday. I could see you possibly participating in something like Flux. I mean, I looked at, like I said, some of the work that you had on Instagram. It looks like it lines right up with that. Yeah. You know, that would actually be dream project. Yeah. <laughs> see, see, you had one all along. Just had to get it, just had to pull it out there. There it was. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah I, mean, I, I mean, honestly, you know, now that I think about it, I'll tell you, like, I would love to do, I would love to do something like flex, quite honestly, or working with, um, art on the belt line. Okay. Would be, I've, I've got a few ideas for some pieces I like to do on art on the belt line, or even working with like someone like T Lang hmm. from the goat farm. That would be that would be amazing. Interesting. What has the Atlanta design space been like for you? I'm curious. It's been it's been interesting. You know, I'll be honest with you. I have struggled with putting myself out there as a designer. Why is that? Well, I would say probably because I lack a lot of the formal education that my design peers have. So that's a big part of it. It's like I've, I've dealt with a lot of anxiety of like imposter syndrome hmm. of like not feeling like a real designer, like. You know, like I don't really have a place in these design spaces because 
I don't have a lot of the same foundational background a lot of these designers have. Um, and a part of it has also just been, I've, I think I've felt more closely aligned to artists. And so I've been involving myself more in artist space than Atlanta's design space. And it's not to say anyone is like, I don't know. Yeah, it's not to say anyone is better than the other. It's just that's kind of where my head's been for a while. So I'm trying to get more into Atlanta's design community. What I've found so far is that it's actually pretty amazing. And it's actually a lot more mature. I anticipated it to be, you know, like as compared to places like New York or San Fran or LA, Atlanta has a wealth of incredibly talented and forward thinking designers. So, you know, now that I'm kind of getting more involved in the scene, I'm very happy meeting these people. I think, you know, there's a lot of like hunger mm. in our community. There's a lot of designers who are just really like wanting to do and, and are doing some big things. What are you most excited about at the moment? I would say my day and my night job, honestly. <laughs> I, you know, I'm really excited for what Airbus Aerial is doing currently. And I'm very excited for the future of the company. We have a lot of really talented people working for the organization. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, like I said, it's a young company. We're two years young. So there's a lot of there's a lot of amorphousness to the company, right? But slowly things are starting to take shape. We're adding, you know, more more process to help us as we take on new projects. And one of those processes that I'm really excited about is implementing the design process, right? Like we're growing so fast. And at the same time, everyone in the company is working really hard to make sure that we don't grow too fast, right? And a part of that is really just understanding how to build a product. And so I think we're taking some really great steps in that direction of like implementing more of a design process and design thinking throughout the organization from top to bottom. Uh, and that excites me a lot. On the Studio Mobius side, I'm really excited because, you know, we just completed one of our first major builds, which is basically that LED board that I mentioned earlier, where it's kind of motion activated LEDs that kind of give a real sense of presence to the stage performer. Um, And so I'm really excited because we just finished that. And we've had some really great shows in the last six months. And, you know, we're looking to the future. And I don't know, it's just really bright. Like we're, you know, there's a lot of room to grow in the interactive arts space in Atlanta. So I'm really excited about the future of studio movies in that regard. I'm also just really excited about the future of being able to collaborate with different artists in Atlanta. There are a number of like really creative people doing some really cool stuff here in the city, like nine to five dot TV, just like a nice little crossover between the digital world and the uh, real world. There are a number of different lighting artists in Atlanta that are doing some really amazing stuff like ATL TV head, another personal friend, Nick, uh, shout out to Nick. So, dude, he does some really cool LED builds. And there's some really great musicians here in the city that are doing some really experimental stuff with like analog modular synthesis, like, you know, like uh, the old Moog synthesizers and things like that. So, there's a really cool like DIY community here in Atlanta that's like growing and kind of prospering. So, I'm really excited for Studio Movies to be a part of that scene as well, coming out of places like the bakery and such. Okay. So, what do you wish you would have known like when you first started when you look back at your career what what do you what knowledge have you gained that you wish you would have known back then honestly you know i wish i wish i had been more patient okay yeah with myself it's hard i think when you're so curious about like all this stuff and you find almost everything to be like really interesting and like you want to do it all um mm. it's hard to focus it's hard to complete stuff and that can have an effect on just the quality of your work and how you relate to others. So I think if I were to run into my past self, 
and had some advice to give that past self, I would say, slow down, be more patient. Everything will happen as it's supposed to. I think when I was younger, I had this like burning desire to get out into the world and prove myself and, you know, be this amazing, like, you know, master of design or art or whatever. And, uh, <laughs> just, you know, I, I think there's a lot of opportunities I missed out on because I was so impatient to get out there and, and like do stuff, you know, like mm-hmm. make stuff. And I think if I had been a bit more patient and a bit more maybe pragmatic in my approach, I don't know. It was to say what would have happened, but I feel like there are some lessons there that I may have left by the road. Well, to that end, where do you see yourself in the next five years or so? What kind of work do you want to be doing? Ideally, you know, I, I would be doing more of the work that I'm doing with Studio Mobius. I really have cherished my design, my time. It, it's tough. It's, it's really tough, um, Race. You know, like on the one hand, I want to continue to learn and grow as a product designer. I'd like to learn more about how to implement design thinking within organizations where design may not necessarily be understood or a priority. So I'd like to continue doing that, but I'd also really like to continue to grow Studio Mobius. And eventually I would really begin working more in the architecture space. So I'd love to do some immersive art projects or some sort of interior architecture project that utilizes both light and sound to create and enhance the experience of that space. So just to kind of wrap things up here, Samuel, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? So you can always go to studio period Mobius on Instagram. Um, We also have a website, studiomobius.co. To learn more about me in particular, you can go to my Instagram. It's Sammy, S-A-M-I, period, black, like the color, period, arts, Sammy Black Arts on Instagram. And that's my personal Instagram. And I, I haven't posted in a while, but I'll be posting more drawings and sketches and um, things of that nature on my Instagram. All right. Sounds good. Well, Samuel Green, I want to thank you just so much for coming on the show. I, I think it was really interesting to learn about the work that you do at Airbus Aerial. Certainly, you know, as technology grows and matures and even now with talks about cameras and surveillance and all this stuff, it's really interesting to hear about how that data is used and why it's so important. Um, and also, I think it was great to hear more about just your journey as a creative, uh, specifically about the point of just wanting to get out there and get things done. Like I always tell people, you know, that want to enter this industry now, there's no real like one way to go about it. So there are many paths to get to where they can be a successful person in the design industry. And I think that your story uh, really helps illustrate that. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Hey, Maurice, thank you. I really appreciate the uh, the opportunity to speak. And um, yeah, hopefully if others can hear this story and learn something from it, you know, don't be afraid to put yourself out there and try something different. Thoughts of love are in and that's it for this week. Big thanks to Samuel Green and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Samuel and their work through the links in the show notes at glitch.com forward slash revision path. Revision Path is a Glitch Media Network podcast and is produced by Deanna Testa and edited by Brittany Brown. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. We're also powered by Simplecast, the easiest way for podcasters to publish and distribute audio on the internet. Make sure you check out the show notes for a link to sign up for a 14-day free trial. And if you liked this episode, then let more people know about it by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. 
You know, it only takes about a minute or so to do, and it really, really does help spread the word about Revision Path everywhere. You can also find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you find your favorite shows. And make sure you're following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as well. Just search for Revision Path. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.